Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. Amy, I'm not even really sure how to introduce today's segment because (laughs) our guest is going to be talking to us about so many different things. So normally we say, hey, today we're talking about bee nutrition. Today we're talking about disease and pests, but today we're actually talking about a lot of things, and I'm really excited to have our guest with us. Our guest is Etienne Tardif, who is a hobbyist beekeeper in the Yukon in Canada. So this is sub-Arctic beekeeping. ATN we reached- can't relate at all. Oh, no, not at <laughs> all. No, we're, we're like sub-sun <laughs> beekeeping. It's like crazy here, but very different beekeeping. ATN, you reached out to us some months and months and months ago with some issues that you were saying, and and we struck up a collaboration through one of uh, my PhD students, Dr. Marley Iredell. And since then, ATN, we've had some really cool interactions and conversations. So thank you so much for joining us here on Two Bees in a Podcast. My pleasure. It's uh, it's an honor, and uh, hopefully we can uh, help folks understand what uh, subarctic beekeeping is and and share some knowledge. <laughs> well, we, we we have you all. We've got some notes down and we know we're talking about kind of three broad things, your involvement in the Western Apiculture Society, some subarctic beekeeping tips and strategies that you have to do where you are, as well as your fascination of citizen science. But before we get into any of that, ATN, what I would really love for you to be able to do is introduce yourself to our listeners, how did you get into beekeeping? What's your background, and how did you find yourself where you are now? Sure. Uh, so my name is Etienne uh, Tardzi. Uh, so I live up in the Yukon. Uh, I got my start in beekeeping uh, through my work. So I'm actually a mechanical engineer. Uh, I help put together maintenance programs and manage large uh, mining fleets and processing plants. Uh, But now I mostly do uh, leadership training and coaching and mentoring and trying to make engineers more practical. Uh, Beekeeping. So I'd say 15 years ago, a geologist friend approached me at the mine site. He says, Etienne, do you want to do beekeeping? And I said, "Uh, I'd never thought about beekeeping. It was never in my psyche. So I said, yes. Uh, So as part of a reclamation project and a sentinel type project. So the geologists wanted to use it to to do some exploration uh, with pollen samples and different things. So basically I got my start uh, through the mine and I guess beekeeping for dummies was our guide because we both had no experience. So, and we had no mentors and there was no other beekeeper in the, the area. So this was in Northwestern Ontario, so in just off the edge of a subarctic climate, but uh, a cold, cold winters, warm summers. So, how many colonies are you running these days? 
Uh, I run anywhere from four to about 10 uh, in three different locations. Uh, the thing with uh, subarctic climates is we're very forage limited uh, and very isolated. So there's no other beekeepers in the area. So if I do 10 colonies in one area, I get zero honey. If I do two to three colonies in one area, then I get uh, say 100 to 150 pounds uh, split on a good season. Uh, but the challenge up here is the weather. Uh, like we haven't had 30 frost day, day frost free days this summer. Uh, so the bees are, uh, I did get, I don't know, 40 pounds of honey. Uh, and it's great honey, but, uh, I guess it is what it is. And it's, uh, I love challenges. So that's why I keep bees up here. That is so, it. I, I'm just thinking about the weather and we're going to, we're going to get to the cold management next. Um, and, and I have so many questions for you, you know, but before we get into that, I do want to discuss your involvement with the Western Apicultural Society. Um, and so can you discuss what the Western Apicultural Society is? What do you guys call yourself? Was, was, I don't know. Um, so tell us what that is and then the purpose that it serves and, and your role with the, um, society. Uh, so a few years back at Dr. Bomenchenk, he reached out to me to be the, uh, the Yukon representative or director for WAS. Uh, and uh, I said yes. And I guess uh, I stuck around for two years. And then there was a uh, new elections. Uh, Dr. Bomenchenk was stepping down. And I was going to be supporting a president. Uh, either as a vice president or another director, but uh, I think things fell through and uh, we were without a president. So I put my hand up and now I guess I'm president of WAS and uh, WAS is a nonprofit. Uh, it's mostly focused on education uh, for Western North America. So all the way down the West coast of the US, all the way up to the Yukon and Alaska uh, and central to Saskatchewan uh, westwards. Uh, and the focus is mostly, I'd say, smallish uh, beekeepers uh, from, say, zero hives to uh, probably a hundred colonies. Uh, we do have some large commercial uh, beekeepers. We have a board. Our board is mostly filled. And I guess that's our focus. It's, it's small uh, beekeepers what we've been putting on during COVID times, uh, monthly mini conferences, where we bring two speakers with a sort of related topic. And we've been running them through Zoom on bee nutrition management, uh, queen drones, diseases and pests. And usually we have a decent uh, panel uh, where like Randy Oliver, uh, I've invited Ian Stepler and uh, we've got Dr. Dewey Karen and a few more, uh, Dr. Medhat, Nassar Medhat. So basically we can have discussions afterwards. So it's, uh, it's fun. And I guess just to, to put a plug in, our next talk is uh, at the end of the month and it's going to be Dr. Perini from Argentina talking about Nosema and Daryl Scott from Hive Alive talking about additives and uh, Hive Alive and some of the research that's been done on that product. 
and Dr. Tarpy next month with Mike Palmer uh, talking about queens and different types of stuff. So we try to put on a, a, a nice, uh, I guess, schedule of speakers over the years, over the year, just to, to provide our membership uh, with uh, some education opportunities. All right, ATN, thank you so much for sharing about your participation with, with WAS. I, I love beekeeping organizations. They are so fundamental in the education and the sustainability of uh, beekeeping and beekeepers. It's really great that you are able to be involved in that capacity in such a large, impactful organization. So now I want to shift gears just a little bit and go back to the fact that you keep bees in such a difficult place to keep bees. You know, here in Florida, it's warm all the time. We think something's happening when we get two or three nights in a row that are that are below freezing and that we have to adjust a lot. But gosh, you experience this all the time. So it's going to be really difficult because there's so many things you could talk about. But could you tell me just a little bit about some of the obstacles you encounter to keeping bees in the cold? You know, one of the things we know about you, because we we're, know you from behind the scenes, you, you use a lot of temperature sensors and you measure a lot of things that maybe the average beekeeper wouldn't use. So, so what are some issues you face, some management that you believe is unique to beekeeping in the cold, and some of the strategies that you employ that you would like to share with other beekeepers? Sounds good. Uh, so I guess our season is fairly short. Uh, it goes from from May, usually May to early September. Uh, fall actually starts in August here. Uh, so in my journey up here, it was figuring out the, uh, I guess the pollen cycles, the, uh, the nectar cycles, the bees annual cycle. So when the queen, the laying cycle of the queen and the ramp up and ramp down, uh, the mite cycles, uh, what's available for forage and all that type of stuff. So I'd say that was the biggest challenge because there's not much, there's beekeepers in Alaska. Most of them are on the coastal, in the coastal area, which is probably four or five uh, USDA hardiness zones warmer than here. So we're zone one to two, uh, where the coast is three to four. Uh, Fairbanks, for example, because just to put things in perspective, in the Yukon, there's only 40,000 people and it's the size, I think, of Spain. Uh, and Alaska has close to a million people. So a lot more people, so a lot more beekeepers, but they tend to kill bees seasonally and then start over uh, in, the, uh, in the, the next season. I don't wanna kill my bees. So my goal was to keep my bees alive, keep them healthy, keep them going. Uh, hence, I follow a lot of the commercial beekeeper approaches. So using pollen patties to understand my, I guess, to re to lengthen my, my queen cycle, get her laying longer, get her laying while there's still snow on the ground when there's no natural pollen. So I, I've had to use my hive my, monitoring. So temperature, for example, one temperature sensor in the center of your colony can tell you what the annual bee cycle is. So it'll tell you when the queen starts laying uh, in the spring and then when she stops laying in the fall. So I've used that, uh, especially in the first couple of years, I didn't use pollen patties. Uh, 
and I had issues with weak colonies in spring. Uh, so if you put things in perspective, my winter bees are anywhere from 200 to 275 days old. So to f I guess to figure that out is, so if you feed pollen patties into August, into early September, and then I start feeding pollen patties in March, I, I can basically make my queen, not my queen, my queen lay earlier and later, but also I make my winter bees younger. So that was one of my key findings was to focus on that. And I guess because we get a lot of frost, just to throw another challenge out there is the plants get stressed out a lot and we get a lot of rust, rust spores, fungal spores on our plants here and the bees collect it like pollen. And from the studies I've read, and it's, it's poor nutrition, and we'll, we can get into microscopy, but I notice a lot of my bees have gutfuls of rust spores, and uh, they're dead out in front of the colony. So I have a feeling it's a stressor, they can't get into full nutrition. So one thing with adding pollen patties in August, it helps reduce rust spore consumption. So uh, these are based on observations. I haven't done any trials, uh, but if you read my stuff, I, I do quite a few observations. I take lots of notes. I take, collect lots of data. So my engineering background, that's what I do. I collect data. So I'm interested to hear, you know, during that time, you said that your season is between around May to September. So what is the average temperature during that time? And I'm just trying to think about the bees foraging and, you know, what that looks like on a day to day. So warm here, like a typical summer will be around 20 degrees Celsius. So I'd say that's in the low 70s. Uh, and in my location, it's the evenings, so the evenings drop to maybe five degrees Celsius, so 40 F. And so I use polystyrene hives. So understanding thermodynamics and all that type of stuff. So by having my polystyrene hives, uh, it it manages the the five degrees. So just to put things in perspective, uh, polystyrene hives bees don't really start clustering until the outside temperatures like minus 10 minus 15 so there's plenty of of wiggle room there for the bees not to get stressed out by the by the cold mornings or even the frosty the occasional frosty morning so this year we had frost mid-july early july late july so luckily a lot of our plants here are frost hardy uh, and drought hardy so they've adapted to it so it doesn't take them long to recover and start uh, producing nectar again in pollen. So it's uh, one thing with the uh, subarctic here is they're not big nectar producers, but they're, they're, they're quite hardy and they recover fairly quick. Do you also feed with sugar water? I tend to only feed sugar water in fall and then I bulk up. So for example, this year, the colonies are in the without any feeding, they were in the 75 to 100 pound range. And because of my extra installation, a colony here consumes maybe 50 pounds. A double brood box colony will produce or consume about 50 pounds in my winter. 
And uh, so I bulk up in fall and then in spring, they don't need any feeding because there's still 50 pounds of, of honey in the, uh, in the colony. So technically I feed uh, maybe 20 pounds of uh, sugar syrup uh, water per colony. And sometimes I don't even have to feed much. It's more to backfill the brood nest as the queen stops laying so that, uh, and to keep them busy until the, the snow falls. Let me ask you a quick question. You know, you're talking about all this and I'm, I'm overlaying it in my mind with typical beekeeper management elsewhere around the world. Um, I want to ask the big question, which is Varroa. Is, is Varroa a problem where you live given the environment and the truncated season? And if so, how do you deal with it? Uh, Varroa is always a problem. So I've experimented. I've let them go unmanaged. And it usually takes three years for a colony to go from very low mite counts to PMS, so parasitic mite syndrome, where there's a collapse and the bees are all beat up. Uh, so what I do is I try to split my colonies every spring uh, to, to recover my numbers. So like I mentioned is I'm fully isolated. Uh, so I try not to bring bees in to manage, to, to, to ensure I don't bring any new mites into my, my apiaries and to manage diseases. <clears throat> so I do use OAV, so oxalic acid uh, vapor, vaporization, and typically one or two treatments is enough. Uh, and I use open screen bottom boards uh, in the winter, but in the summer I have the tray in and I use OAV actually to help me with my uh, mite counts. So the post treatment drop, I count. Because uh, when I do alcohol washes, I typically get like zero to one mite uh, on a normal colony. But if I do an OAV, I'll get an actual post treatment drop. Uh, in extreme cases, I'll use Formic Pro uh, to really uh, beat those mites up. But uh, I'd say, like everywhere, if you do nothing, eventually it comes it comes back and bites you. So I. I do have a few colonies that don't have mites and they just seem to be able to manage it. But uh, there's always a few colonies that have high mite counts. And if I do nothing, then it'll be a poor spring for them. They'll survive the winter. Again, the insulation and the way no top entrance and the way I manage my colonies uh, is very low stress, low metabolic rate. Most of the heating inside the colony is done through resting metabolism versus active metabolism. So the bees are less stressed and they age less quickly. So I'm thinking, and Jamie, you can kind of maybe help me think this through, but you know, with the queen slowing down production, her egg laying during the winter, doesn't that kind of give us a little bit of a brood break as far as, you know, Varroa and, and mite monitoring and how many mites there could be in a colony? Uh, so I guess that was part of my strategy initially was to use brood breaks uh, to manage Varroa, but uh, we've got one of the longest brood breaks up here and it has minimal impact. So I have a feeling because previously a few years back, we thought that uh, mites were phoretic. They just hang on to the bees all winter. Uh, but they actually do feed during the winter. So it's not like they're not feeding. And I found that a bad 
say a medium infestation level uh, one year, so the next spring, uh, the mites will be at or at higher numbers. Uh, and because of my hot approach to running my colonies in winter is they don't freeze. Uh, the average temperature in the box is about 15 degrees Celsius, and that's just using passive heat. So the mites, the mites are, uh, I guess they're there and I've got to do something. So either through genetics, which is hard up here or via treatment. So I, I don't, uh, rely on brood breaks for thermal control. So something else that you had just mentioned was about um, the different gut microbiome and that you did microscopy work. And and so I know that you've worked a little bit with Nosema and amoeba. And so can you tell us just a little bit about that? Uh, Yeah. So probably back in 2017, I had my first winter losses. After four years of beekeeping and having 100% success rate in my winter, I had my first winter losses where I lost four colonies. And they all had dysentery. They all had massive bee mortality out front of the colonies during winter. So during cold events, there'd be thousands of dead bees out front. And, and the, the one thing in common, they all had honeydew honey. So I discovered what honeydew honey was, a dark honey. Uh, and just on that honeydew honey, the one I had, I had it tested and, uh, a typical honey has 70 grams to 75 grams of sucrose, not sucrose, of glucose fructose. Uh, this one had 50 grams. Okay, so you can do the math. Uh, so glucose and fructose is their simple sugars. It's what the bees use to generate energy. So it was actually a very poor fuel for the winter. So they had to consume more. And at the same time, I started learning about Nosema and how Nosema is a energy robbing disease. So it's all these spores in their guts. It's feeding on their gut content. So it's actually stealing energy from them. So it means that they have to eat more to get the same amount of energy output. Uh, they've got honeydew, which is less energy, more stuff. So they call it ash content. So things they can't digest. So their guts get full of stuff and then they pooped everywhere inside the hive during the winter. Uh, bees like to be clean. So they basically, my theory is they were trying to clean it and I had a mass inf- infection of Nosema. So during that winter, I, I think I read some of Randy Oliver's material on Nosema and I bought myself a microscope with a digital camera. And then I started monitoring the dead bees out front uh, to look for Nosema. And at the time, I didn't recognize there was these little globes in my pictures, but I didn't know what they were. Okay, people were saying, oh, they're yeast, they're different things. Uh, So I started connecting Nosema with the mortality in front of the colony. So a colony that had low mortality, and literally I have pictures of piles of dead bees in front of a colony and then the colony right next to it had say five dead bees so i knew there was a connection there so the power of observation looking and asking questions is key for any beekeeper and so the first year budget stuff died i cleaned my equipment up Uh, i used vinegar and scraping and threw a lot of frames out 
uh, and then the following year, so I had four colonies again, and I only lost one colony. Again, same symptoms, a bunch of dead bees. So I clean the bees off. <clears throat> the next month, a bunch of dead bees, uh, some dysentery out at the front. Uh, but now I knew how to manage honeydew honey. If I see it, I feed more, I pull some frames. So again, seeing Nosema, seeing these globes, and and then the following year it happened again. So same symptoms. So that's where I said, okay, I'm going to figure this out. And that's where I, I reached out to you, Dr. Ellis, and then you put me in touch with Dr. Iredale. And then at that point, I, I taught myself how to dissect bee guts. And I knew about these globes because somebody had put me on to, uh, let's see, I can't pronounce it, uh, amoeba disease. And I knew about uh, mal tubules so it's like the bees kidneys so I was able to extract some of those and then I could see all these cysts these globes in it I was like oh it's amoeba disease but uh and that's where I sent uh, a sample fixed in 100% uh, ethanol to Dr. Erdell and then uh, she did some some work on that and we were able to finally confirm that uh, it was amoeba disease and because it's the kidney and it helps the bees manage their internal water, so which is critical for winter here, is manage water. Uh, so basically, it was probably the missing link because sometimes bees have nosema, even high loads, but there's no mortality and the bees do fine in the spring. They make it through. So in my case, anytime I notice those globes, so those cysts, along with nosema, it would spell a basically a high mortality during winter fewer bees means more energy output per remaining bee means more consumption more stress more aging and all that and then in the spring there's a rapid dwindle so i've tried to requeen i've tried to add frames from stronger colonies but they always eventually fail and i've tested a queen uh, the one time and yeah she was infected too so it uh it's it, it was my aha moment and i've taken i've taken my box knife and scraped off feces off the frames and i put them in a little vial added some hot water mixed it up ran it through my little centrifuge and it's full of nosema and amoeba spores or amoeba cysts so now the question is is that a transmission are those contagious? Can they create a new infection? And I guess those are future questions and things that we can figure out. There's so much follow-up that I want to do, <laughs> ATN, because there's so much to talk about here. But I, I'm just going to stick to the script. And, and thank you for that overview of the things that you have to battle in your particular place. And I'm going to change a little bit of the story now to your passion for citizen science. So could you share with us a, a few of the projects that you've led or in what you've participated and, and ultimately what draws you to citizen science? So I'll call it uh, group science because uh, when I first started, we had maybe one or two, I guess, old time beekeepers in the Yukon that had been keeping bees forever. And most of them got beat up once mites arrived and overwintering became really difficult. Uh, so the first point of my project was to get our beekeepers together and to share ideas or, or successes or failures and that type of stuff. 
then we got into education. So I brought up a, a master beekeeper to run a course. Uh, and I created a Facebook group for subarctic beekeepers up here, uh, Alaska, Northwest Territories, and a few Northern Europeans. Uh, I purchased, I did start a, a small beekeeping club where we do have some hive monitoring equipment that uh, technically could be shared out, but I guess the data, not everybody has the right background to get the most of, out of uh, hive monitoring equipment. So you can get your basic cycles or nectar flows and all that. Uh, but basically it was more about sharing ideas and projects that I've been doing is uh, looking at different hive configurations during winter. Uh, so asking what other people do and then sort of connecting the data on successes to understand uh, the whys and understanding, uh, I guess, heat loss, uh, natural ventilation. So if you don't use a top entrance, natural ventilation becomes your, your critical factor. So how can you maximize natural ventilation without not ventilating too much and just using a bottom entrance or an open screen bottom board, how to manage moisture, uh, so just to put things in perspective, in cold climates or even in a winter down south, even if the RH, so relative humidity is close to 100%, so 80 to 100%, there's very little moisture in that air. Okay, anytime the, water, the temperature is in the minus 15, minus 20, uh, the air loses a lot of moisture or water carrying capacity. So from my numbers and my crunching, most of the water, so 80 to 100% of the water inside a colony in winter is from the metabolic processes. So the bees consuming honey and then perspiring or sweating out the, uh, the moisture into the colony. So by reducing consumption, you reduce the amount of moisture, the, the colony by overventilating and creating more heat loss uh it's there's a balance there and in some places the cluster is a great mechanism for keeping the bees alive in my area the cluster would die if without extra protection so insulation so it's finding that balance so there's a sometimes it's cluster driven overwintering versus hive enclosure uh driven wintering so it's it's a balance of both so i'm just i'm amazed we've talked about so much today we we heard your story we talked about the western apicultural society we talked about your experience with microscopy citizen science um it seems like the hive monitoring equipment that in and of itself is just amazing and i have a million more questions about it but you know with beekeepers I think it's always fun for beekeepers to help beekeepers and beekeepers to mentor other beekeepers. And what recommendations would you have for other backyard beekeepers or commercial beekeepers interested in just being part of honeybee science, citizen science? You know, should they go out and get a microscope? You know, what are your recommendations for these beekeepers? So first, I guess beekeepers need to learn to ask questions especially the question why. 
So why something happened? And then learn to hypothesize. So you have to do some reading, but it's critical that a beekeeper learns to ask the question, why? Why did this happen? And then come up with, say, two, three reasons why they think it happened. Okay. And the, the, the key with networking and working together in a group is then you can start bouncing idea, ideas off each other. Uh, the thing on a microscope, so for most people, I would say, especially if they're part of a club, the club has some extra funds. So buy a microscope for the club that it can be loaned out. Because uh, I'm self-taught. The last time I'd used the microscope, I think, was in high school. And I had to teach myself how to use it, watch lots of YouTube videos. Uh, and but then there's again it's questions so typically you do need a leader so i have these vials and i pass out those files and i or i say if, if you see this collect the bees put them in a ziploc bag put them in your freezer and i'll analyze the bees for you because the more we talk to each other the more we share our the good and the bad and the more we ask questions because my problems is yes i have winter but it's Beekeeping is beekeeping, and then there's just the regional differences, but in general, beekeeping is beekeeping, regardless of where you are in the world, uh, especially in the temperate world. Okay, so if you're in Hawaii and you've got a uh, nectar flow year round is one thing, but over here, when you do have a winter and a pause, it is what it is. But I'd say on microscopy and hive monitoring, uh, the more you work together, the more you compare data, I'd say the, the better it is versus trying to do things on your own. Uh, it's always better as a team because you'll get a broader sense of what's really going on. Absolutely. I feel like I need to just, I need to make a plan to visit in 2023 because I want to see how beekeeping works and I could use some cold air. Yeah, we get that in summer too. So, Gosh, that's just amazing information that you share with us. First of all, I can't imagine keeping bees where you live, but your involvement in WAS, as well as your attention to detail, how focused you are as a beekeeper and, and just your involvement in citizen science and education of other beekeepers. I really think ATN just is, is really nice to see. And I really appreciate you coming onto our podcast and sharing that with our listeners. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. And I guess the key thing is beekeepers have fun and learn from your failures because we all fail. Mm -hmm. Good words. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, Jamie. So listeners, this is a follow-up from our interview that we just had. And now I have to tell everyone what I've just done <laughs> because it's going to be so obvious. And, you know, Amy over here was trying to speak into the mic and Jamie kept telling me that I sounded like I was so far away from the microphone. And so now I, apparently I sound better. Is that right, Jamie? You you do. You sound like <laughs> when you were doing the interview. Now I sound like, like I'm yelling follow. at you. <laughs> now you sound crisp and clear. The Amy well, I know. 
That's great. And the reason was because my microphone was backwards when I was <laughs> podcasting. It's funny because uh, the, behind, the behind the scenes story is you and I kind of were taking pauses between the interview to try to troubleshoot. I'm like, Amy, have you got the right microphone selected? <laughs> and I, I even took a picture of my little um, monitor box just to see if and come over to your office to see if the settings were right. And then I looked at your microphone. Oh my goodness. It was turned sideways. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's probably it. And now you sound so crisp and clear. You know what? This is what people get for <laughs> <laughs> a low production podcast. That's right. Okay, everyone. You get what you pay for, folks. <laughs> That's right. I am no podcasting expert, but my microphone is now <laughs> turned towards the right side. All right. <laughs> now I You're can't speaking even do... into the mic yeah. rather than past the mic. Now, <laughs> now I can't even get with the outro. <laughs> Honestly, we, I mean, at the end of that interview, we Google Maps where um, ATN was, and it was, it was so far north. And it seemed so cold and it looked so beautiful and it seemed super remote. And I'm just completely super impressed, you know, with the fact that he's beekeeping in subarctic temperatures, right? Like that's crazy to think about. Yeah, it's it's crazy indeed, right? I've I've only ever grown up and lived in warm climates. And I just it's it's really difficult for me to fathom the condition that the bees have to go through in order to survive those temperatures. But you know, in their native range, uh, Apis mellifera does occur in Northern Europe naturally, and they would have had to survive some pretty harsh temperatures. So as long as the conditions are right for them, as, as ATN was showing, it's very possible for them to survive in the conditions that I sometimes wonder why people live in. So it's right. I know, it, it's, <laughs> but it's amazing to me. The story was amazing and all of his involvement and everything was really cool. I mean, I think something else that he had mentioned just about beekeepers, you know, constantly asking questions. I feel like that's why a lot of us get into beekeeping. It's just, we like the problem solving. We like to kind of figure out what's going on, you know, in our colony, the whys, right? The whys and why do we think that this or this or this has happened? And so I think just his involvement with the um, society and the involvement with citizen science and just, you know, he's just my type of beekeeper. He wants to share his information. He wants to see what's going on. And then you kind of use that to move forward with a, a little mini project or activity that you have in your own apiary. I think one of the ways to think about this is that, you know, we interview a lot of commercial beekeepers. We interview a lot of scientists. We interview industry folks. We interview uh, hobbyist beekeepers. And, and what I would say is it takes all of this to move the beekeeping industry and beekeeping in general forward, right? A ATN is doing this as a hobby, but brings his data hungry engineering background to the table to teach us all something about managing bees. So new knowledge doesn't always need to come from scientists. It's it's comes from commercial beekeepers, hobbyist beekeepers, sideline beekeepers, all the players. And I just really love listening to him talk about what he's saying, he wasn't just saying stuff to say it. You know, it didn't sound very anecdotal. He was matching it with the data that he was collecting from right. the colonies. And I really like that. It's really powerful. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just going to put a shameless plug in for our programs, but with our master beekeeper program with the University of Florida, we do teach a segment about research. We teach about science communication and, you know, education is very important to us and conducting research and understanding how that process works is part of our master beekeeper program. So I encourage anyone who's interested in the research side of things and conducting their own projects um, to, to go through our program, because I think it is, it is very helpful. That's 
a perfect comment, Amy. One of the ways that I see scientists, you know, a lot of times people come to us, well, you're not full-time beekeepers. You can't know what you're talking about. What scientists are really good at is asking the right questions and mm-hmm. knowing how to answer them. And I think like what you mentioned in our master beekeeper program, the research module that we have is just that, Hey, you, you don't always need scientists to answer your questions for you. You can come up with questions, answer them for your own and change your management practices based on what you find. And sometimes you just need a little help knowing how best to do that. And that that's certainly a, uh, a service that we can offer from, from kind of the academic side of things. And then you see someone like ATN who's employing that technique in his own operation and is finding ways to keep his bees alive and the subarctic temperatures throughout a year. That's just really great. And that's the way that it's supposed to work. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. question and answer segment. Today, Jamie, today I wanted to talk a little bit about artificial intelligence and just, I guess we're going to talk about technology and what that looks like in the honeybee world. So I feel like this is like an exciting new topic that that especially the University of Florida is excited about, right? And so all three questions are related to this. And the first question I have is what what is artificial intelligence and how does that, I mean, like, how does that even apply to honeybees? Okay. Well, (laughs) all right. So I'm going to begin answering this question by saying this is not my research field. So I'm I'm giving (laughs) a very cursory kind of 30,000 foot um, view of this. The reason it's pertinent to us here is that we've done a little bit of work on it. Some colleagues of mine around the country have done a little bit of work around the world have done a little bit of work. The University of Florida is investing heavily in Mm -hmm. artificial intelligence. In fact, they claim to be the leaders uh, in the U.S., at least, for artificial intelligence research. And, of course, we're in a school of agriculture, so how how to use AI in agricultural settings. And, And let's just face it, folks, if you're listening to me out there, there will be an exponential explosion of research in the AI realm especially with honeybees, since this is our world, right, over the next decade. And what what is artificial intelligence? Well, I can't describe it well since it's not my field, but it's essentially, right, um, computer technologies that, that allow computers to solve problems and develop problem-solving strategies in ways that currently take humans a lot of thinking power and time. So. Let me give you an example of how AI is currently used in the honeybee world or how artificial intelligence. There's a project, for example, I'm aware of where some folks are taking pictures of wings from the different subspecies of Apis mellifera. They're telling the computer that these wings come from Ligustica, these wings come from Carnica, these wings come from Caucasica, these wings come from Capensis, these wings from Scutellata, these wings from Adansonia, or whatever subspecies that you want. You're saying, hey, computer, these wings are from these subspecies. Now you figure out what the differences are in these wings, such that someday we can take a picture of a wing of a honeybee with an app, and then the app tell us what subspecies were you looking at, right? And there's there's these applications already out there. My wife loves to sit on our front porch 
put the sound, the bird sound application to use where it picks up the sound of the birds in our yard and then it then identifies Mm -hmm. all the birds. Well, that's an application currently done with birds. They do it in the plant world where you take a picture of a plant leaf and it tells you what species of plant you're working with. Well, very soon in the bee world, I say very soon, maybe tongue in cheek, you can take pictures of wings and it tell you what bee you have. We, my lab, we developed the ability to take pictures of a bee's wing, a honeybee's wing, and tell what species of apis, not subspecies of apis mellifera, but what species of apis. It's called apis ID. If you go online and find apis ID, you can upload an image of your honeybee wing, click on 19 points, press enter, and it will tell you if you have mellifera, dorsata, laboriosa, Serrana, Kashevnikovi, Nuluensis, etc. So the species level work was kind of easy. The subspecies work is more difficult because a computer needs to find differences that we don't think of. And that's just identifying honeybees. What if you could point your phone at a frame and take a picture and it determine your varroa loads, which some people claim to have already done. You can look it up online. You take pictures of bees and it count varroa or take a picture of a frame and it tell you if you have brood diseases. Or take a picture of your frame and it tells you if you have bee diseases, brood diseases, and what step you should take next. Or to upscale it even further, if technology could around the country could say, hey, there was better rainfall in the southeastern United States this year or in Western Europe this year or in Northern Africa this year. And it was able to predict the nectar flow based on mm-hmm. rainfall, heat, and temperature and say, hey, this year, your area is not going to be a good place for honey production. If you move them 50 kilometers to the west, it will be much better because a computer crunched all the numbers, looked at the weather data, looked at the warm hours, the rainfall, and was able to predict that there were nectar flows would be better over here this year than over there. So artificial intelligence basically has, is among other things, is a way to look at problems and solve those problems that we would otherwise struggle on our own to do quickly. It might predict when you need to requeen. It might predict, like I said, nectar flow or disease and pest loads. It might predict um, um, pollination events. There's there's all kinds of ways that we can see uh, moving forward how artificial intelligence is going to make beekeeping easier. I've, I've even seen one thing, and I'll, I'll slow down so that you can ask me the next question, but I've even seen one company out there create a completely um, robotic hive, as it were. This this mm-hmm. machine is the casing of the hive, and it takes frames out of this hive, takes images, knows what to do in response to the images that it receives, if it needs control, and it, it, it administers treatments and does all of these things to a colony. And as you might guess, you know, new technologies in the AI world are going to cost a lot. But when we we think about it kind of as fringe technologies now, but by the time I retire, I believe AI will be integral into keeping and managing bees. And so I'm kind of just touching the tip of the iceberg as I discuss this here. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've had a speaker in the past talk about, um, you know, I'm kind of transitioning into the next question that we have for today, but it, it's based on remote monitoring of colonies. And so, you know, we've We've discussed with beekeepers before just the different types of remote monitoring they have. Of course, I'm like thinking about, I actually saw a video recently, it was on Facebook, and it was like this farmer who was at his house 
but driving a tractor and just could see it in real time. Like there was basically a camera on the tractor and, and they weren't actually out there in the field, but they could see, you know, what they were doing. So I'm just imagining that being part of the honeybee world and what that could look like, you know, in the future. But as far as remote monitoring of colonies, you know, what is it? Is it helpful? Is it useful? Have you seen this? What, what, what information and data are, are beekeepers supposed to be looking for? Hey, I think I think your preamble to that question is really good because I really sh- uh, uh, before I answer your question, I really think it shows what's possible out there. So beekeeping right. tends to lag behind the rest of agriculture, but you're right. Farmers can sit in their, their living room and and their combine can go do all the work. And even beyond that, there can be um, moisture sensors in the soil at different depths and at different mm-hmm. spots in the field. Heck, Amy, there's even um, nitrogen sensors at different spots in the field. And so with these moisture and nitrogen sensors, um, they can control irrigation and fertilization yep. release and give different amounts of nitrogen to different spots of the field, different amounts of water to different spots of the field. So From you their get cell this, phone. Exactly. <laughs> and so essentially you get really smart control and delivery of water and fertilizer and just all kinds of stuff in, in in agriculture. Okay. So in the bee world, what's that going to look like? So I think people started getting introduced to technology in the honeybee world, mostly through this concept of remote monitoring, which is what you're you're asking specifically about. And so what is remote monitoring? That's basically like the, the term says, the ability to monitor your colonies remotely. And almost Every company that I've seen try to get into the remote monitoring world has done it through, I want to weigh your colonies. I want to tell you what your temperature is inside your hive. And I also want to tell you what the humidity is inside your hive. It's weight, temperature, humidity, weight, temperature, humidity, weight, temperature, humidity. So there's a lot of folks putting these weight, temperature, and humidity sensors in their colonies. And all of this is good, but the ability to measure these things has outpaced the ability to know what they mean. Right. So for example, I know if a colony is getting heavier, that's okay. But I don't know if a colony is warmer or colder by a degree. What does that mean? Do I, What do I need to do with it? So, so unfortunately, the remote monitoring technology, the monitoring part has outpaced the what do we do with this information right. part. And so from the, from the, perspective of remote monitoring, beekeepers need to know what what these things that we can measure actually predict so that we can turn it into an action. So when I've got this weight, this humidity, this temperature, this sound, this whatever that I can monitor remotely, it's telling me I need to come do this to my colony. And that's where we that's where we kind of bog down. We can measure all of these other things, but, but it, it stops short of saying, okay, so what do we need to do with this information? I know that there's one laboratory, for example, in the U S that for a while has been trying to correlate the sound that colonies make with Varroa infestation levels or small high beetle infestation levels. So that's great. Um, In that case, colonies might make a certain sound when they've got high varroa infestations, in which case this sound equals, I need to go treat my bees, or this sound equals, I've got a lot of beetles. So those are actionable monitoring data points. But a lot of the data points that I see being collected in colonies at the moment 
aren't actionable. But that's it, Amy. That's where artificial intelligence steps in. Mm-hmm. We we measure all of these parameters and colonies. We give it to a computer and say, computer, here's the data point, number one. Here are the data, here are the data points, number one. Number two, here's the colony condition that we measure. Now, if you do that over thousands of colonies, collecting all these data points from the remote monitoring, and you feed in the colony had a queen, it produced lots of bees, it had a little bit of brood, had a lot of pollen, a little bit of pollen, so forth. You put all that information to a machine, the artificial intelligence can say, hey, when these things are being picked up on your sensors, this is what's happening in your colony. And that's the future beauty of remote monitoring. But we need artificial intelligence to decipher all that information to make the data that we are gathering actionable. And that's kind of where we are in that field right now. Well, you've kind of already answered this, but I'll ask you anyway, you know, what do you think the future is as far as technology and honeybees? Oh, Amy, I absolutely believe that someday there will be sensors in our colonies that do a lot of the work that a colony inspection is necessary for at the moment. Right. Right. So, so for example, I've had colleagues here at university of Florida say that they can, they can develop uh, monitoring devices that will look for certain levels of very specific classes of pesticides, maybe like neonicotinoids or organophosphates. So when that pesticide comes through the entrance of the hive, that sensor will be able to point it out to you and you'd get, you know, told. So I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that someday there'll be these chips. There'll be these sensors and colonies that monitor things that we can't even think about now. Right now we're thinking about sound, temperature, humidity, maybe pesticide exposure, maybe queen presence, things like that. But I think, I think someday, maybe, maybe unfortunately not in my lifetime, but I think someday in the next few decades, maybe as well as fast as technology moves, maybe in my lifetime, that there will be sensors that take away the need to physically work colonies to identify what the issues are. For example, they'd be able to count bees coming in at a hive. They'd be able to measure pollen loads coming in. They'd be able to measure by weight gain nectar coming into the hive. And all of this information be assimilated and processed through these artificial intelligence machine learning technologies that are being developed to where beekeepers are sitting at control boards saying, oh gosh, five colonies in apiary A need to be addressed. It looks like there's a feeding situation that's necessary. So it still may require beekeepers to to engage in the action necessary to fix the problem. I do feel like the diagnosis of the problem through sensing technologies is, quote, right around the corner. Now, some companies would say the fixing of the problem is right around the corner because there's these we talked about earlier, these kind of robotic structures that you keep multiple colonies in and they not just, they don't only just sense the problem, they fix the problem. And so (laughs) maybe beekeeping someday will be sitting in your living room, watching TV while occasionally checking the app on your phone. (laughs) But, but I really feel with the technologies, I mean, it's technology, right? So the first iPhones were very expensive. Well, now these days they're still expensive, but lots of people have them, but the technology Mm -hmm. is there and everywhere. Well, I really feel like we're going to get there with bees where there are these monitoring technologies in every hive. It's standard practice, every hive. And heck, if you can make self-driving cars, you can make self-driving forklifts that will fork up the pallets of bees, put them on the back of the truck and move them to almond pollination without you needing to do it. And before people laughing that this is happening, I'm telling you there's, it's, there's, there's no end to 
in this world to what science and technology can do. So what, whereas we may not see it in our lifetime, I definitely believe that, that in the future beekeeping will be a lot of kind of remote managing of colonies. I just definitely believe that's going to happen. Yeah, I kind of just laugh because so this past summer I was working with some commercial beekeepers harvesting honey and it was I and I've told this story before it was so hot and the boxes were so heavy. And I just remember being like so sweaty in my car driving away and of course they have a relationship with the landowner there that you know usually the farmer they've got row crops etc. And I just remember like driving out so hot and sweaty and exhausted. And I look over and this farmer is just sitting in his air conditioned tractor driving past me and down the road. And I'm just like, I wonder when things are going to change, you know, as far as like management practice with the beekeeping industry. And it's just so interesting because what would it take for the next step to be able to make that happen, right? For beekeepers, again, like you said, to sit in their living room or in AC somehow, or have like a self-driving uh, forklift to be able to help with some of that stuff. So it's always kind of fun to think about. Hey, I tell you, it's, it's, it's so important. Beekeeping is incredibly labor intensive, Yeah, incredibly labor intensive. You physically have to move colonies ridiculous times of the day and night. You physically have to go into hives to diagnose what issues are so that you can treat whole apiaries or feed whole, whole apiaries. And our industry is small. So technology creep into our industry is slow. But a lot of these other agricultural industries, you keep mentioning farmers driving tractors, that they are laying the groundwork for what will someday be an explosion of technology in our industry that will out, you know, unquestionably revolutionize the B world. I'll give you one final example and I'll quit yapping about it. But 20 years ago, maybe, maybe 15 or years ago, I was at a blueberry processing facility where the, the blueberry grower had this machine that would drop blueberries through a large tube and on its way down the tube, sensors in the tube could tell if the blueberries were ripe or not, if they were blue or green or red. And as those berries were falling, they would shoot jets of air to punch the unripe blueberries out of the system <laughs> as it fell. And oh, by the way, as it fell, they were freezing the rest of the blueberries so that by the time they got to the bottom of the chute, all of the unripe blueberries had been shot out by air jets and the blueberries that hit the bottom were frozen. That's <laughs> so, amazing. Yeah, this was 15 or 20 years ago. Now imagine jets of air knocking varroa off of bees and hives. And I know people listening are going to giggle, but a lot of other ag is way ahead of us in this and our day is coming. So be ready. All right. Well, that was a fun conversation. I'm excited for some of the AI junkies, you know, to have input in this conversation as well. So if you have any questions or if you have any articles or whatever you want to share with us, feel free to do so by sending us an email or um, sending us a message on any of our social media pages. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. For more information and resources on today's episode, check out the Honeybee Research Lab website at ufhoneybee.com. If you have questions you want answered on air, email them to us at honeybee at ifas.com.
www.ufl.edu or message us on social media at UF Honeybee Lab on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was hosted by Jamie Ellis and Amy Vu. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Vu and Sarah Sowers. Thanks for listening and see you next week.